Glad to be with you this morning. My name is Brandon, and I have the joy of serving as one of the pastors, the joy of bringing you God's Word this morning as we worship together, right? We've done it so far. We've sung songs of God's promises, God's grace, right? We've prayed together. We've heard God's Word read, and now, in a sense, what we're going to do is hold a microphone up to the Lord and say, all right, Lord, speak to us. We're in the book of 2 Samuel, and uh, we started... Uh, good grief, back in February. Can you believe that? Started back in February. I believe the second week was 1 Samuel chapter 3, where he saw the Lord call Samuel, and Samuel's response is, speak, for your servant is listening. And may that be the posture of our hearts this morning. So if you have a Bible, would you go ahead and open up to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Real quick, you should have received one of these on your way in here. Summer class is beginning June 12th in a couple of weeks. As our small groups take a break, this is just an opportunity for you to dive deeper into the Word and into specific uh, topics or areas of the Scriptures. So westcab.org slash summer classes. You can find out more info about that and sign up for one of these summer classes. So excited about that coming up this summer along with many, many other things. Second Samuel chapter 7. Uh, in this series, we've walked through prophets, priests, and kings. We've, we've walked through and we've seen the people of God delivered from Egypt, brought into the promised land, and now the Lord has given them a king, right? A king to rule over them. And so we've taken a, a few, uh, actually just one week break. Last week we were in the book of Esther. Last time we met in 1 Samuel, we were in 1 Samuel 24, now we're in 2 Samuel 7, so a lot has happened. So we're going to do a little bit of catch-up this morning, but there are two main characters that we need to be familiar with in 1 and 2 Samuel. The first one is Saul. Everybody say Saul. Beautiful. Saul was the first king of Israel, and Saul did not listen to God. And so God removed him from being the king. And then there's David. David is now the current king. He's sitting on the throne. He's one of the most well-known characters in all the scripture. And David is God's chosen man to lead Israel. And so what's been happening is there's been this civil war that's been going on. And God used David to unite those two kingdoms. So two chapters earlier, 2 Samuel chapter 5, Israel is now one unified kingdom, won't last long. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6, now the, the first thing David does with this unified kingdom is he goes to find Indiana Jones to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. And so, yes, they're coming out with an Indiana Jones nine or something like that. So uh, this should be fun. Um, but the Ark of the Covenant, we need to know this. Listen, the Ark of the Covenant was the center of Israel's worship. It was the center of Israel's worship. It was there that God met with his people. It was there that God spoke to and dwelt among his people. And the Ark was, was the very center of this thing called the tabernacle. And it was this place where God's presence dwelt among his people. And so 2 Samuel 7, we'll see what David wants to do next. And this morning, 
we'll see one of the most surprising things in the scriptures. So we are going to read the entire chapter. I ask you to uh, listen along with me. If you need a Bible, there's some in the Welcome Center. Nobody will think it's weird if you go and grab one and take that home as a gift. That is a gift to you. You can also follow along on the screen. But I want you to listen in to the Word of God. This is also an act of worship to us because this will be the only part of the sermon probably that will not be flawed, that will be perfect and without error. God's words. So let's listen to it now. 2 Samuel 7, verse 1. Now when the king lived in the house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, God Uh, Excuse me, go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you and I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish this kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever In accordance with all these things and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Verse 18, then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? What is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? 
For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God beside you according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel? The one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. That is a promise. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are true. And you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, we have sung of your greatness this morning, that you are holy, that you are set apart, that none compares to you. We've seen it over and over, your perfection and your set apartness throughout 1 Samuel. And now even into 2 Samuel. And so God, I pray that in this time as we hear from you that you would speak to us, that you would form us more into the image of Christ, heaven's best. We pray this in his great name, the name of Jesus. And we all said together, amen. Amen. Let me outline this passage for us this morning. As we read that text, there are essentially three movements that happen in this text. There's, there's three movements, and we saw, we'll spend just a brief moment on this, verse 1 to 3, David's desire. David has a desire to build the Lord a house. And then what happens is the Lord responds. The Lord responds right away, that very night, verse 4. And then third, the last movement, the last section in verse 18 to 29, we'll see David's response. So David's desire, the Lord's response, and then David's response. So let's look briefly, verses 1 to 3, at David's desire. David is sitting back, and David wants to do what? He wants to build a house for God. We'll see in this chapter that the word house is mentioned three different times. And here in this chapter, house, there, there, there's a... There's a play on words that's happening. House is used three different ways. It's referred to as David's palace, the fact that David wants to build a house, a temple, and then God says, no, no, I'm going to build you a house. So there's a dynasty. So a palace, a temple, and then a dynasty. 
But I want us to look at how this passage begins. As we said just a moment ago, David has just captured Jerusalem, right? And so the kingdom is unified. And and what they do is Israel builds this house of cedar for him. This is a very expensive, very impressive house. And David sort of looks out his window and he's reminded that the Ark of the Covenant is still in a in, in the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle is a big tent. It's an expensive tent. It's an elaborate tent. But at the end of the day, it's a tent. And so David goes, okay, God, me, God is in a tent. I'm in a palace, right? Something is, is wrong with this picture. I have no business being in a palace when God is in a tent, And I want us to see, like, this is David. You study the life of David. This is David at his best. He's going to look out of a window a couple chapters later, I believe next week, and things are not going to go so well. But we see here the humility of David. David was at the peak of his power. And what are we tempted to do often when we're at the peak of our power? Not often is it to be humble, right? More than likely, it's to be, to be arrogant or prideful or cocky. But in verse 2, David goes and he finds this prophet, Nathan, and he says, Nathan, I've got this idea. I think we should build God a house. I think we should build God something he deserves. Nathan's response, seems like a good idea. Go and do it. And we'll see here in a minute that God says, hold on, pump the brakes here. Like, this is a good idea, eventually, but you're not actually going to be the one to do it. And at first, this seems like like a good motive, but we, in our decisions also, we need to pause and reflect on any decision we make, even decisions that may seem godly, that we might stop and pause and seek out the Lord's direction. Because while it may seem right to us, it may not be God's will at the moment. So we see David's desire, but I want us to look secondly at David's, uh, excuse me, at the Lord's response. And listen to me, God's response in verse 4 to 17 tells us so much that we need to know about the heart of who our God is. It tells us so much about what we need to know about the character of who God is. Look at God's response in verse 4. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. That night, God wastes no time. That night, he comes to Nathan and says, Nathan, you need to go to my servant David and you need to tell him this. And I think it's interesting, right, how things have have sort of shifted. In verse 1 to 3, David is referred to as who? King David. But look at verse 5. Who is he referred to? That's right, my servant. It's okay to talk. We'll do a little bit of this this morning. My servant, right? Listen to verse 5. 5 to 7. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all my places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So what does God do? God corrects 
David. Not that there's anything wrong with building a house or building a temple. It will get built. But God says, but David, it won't be you. And we see all through the Old Testament, we see in this passage that God's concern is his people. God's commitment is to his people. Jeremiah 32, God says these words, they will be my people and I will be their God. God is saying, since the Exodus, since I went and got Charlton Heston to bring you out of Egypt, crossed over the Red Sea, I've been committed not to a place, but a people. I will dwell with them. I don't care about a nice house for my people to come to me. God says, here are my people, slaves that are now free, wandering through the wilderness, but I'm not going to set up shop on some mountain palace and get my people to come up to me. No, I'm going to go down to them. It may be a tabernacle, it may be a tent that is tattered at times, but my concern is not to a place, but to a people. And you'll see this thread carried out through all of the scriptures, throughout the Bible, that God wants to dwell and to be with his people. This is where we'll see the irony Yes, the Israelites were carrying the tent. They were carrying the presence of God. But in essence, God was the one who was carrying them. And isn't the same true with us? And aren't we thankful? <laughs> aren't we thankful? Right? This is the gospel. This is real-life Christianity. It's not about us making our way to God. It's about God making his way to us, redeeming us and making us his. There's this notion that Christianity is about us trying to, to be good, about us trying to sort of work our way up to God, right? As if God is on top of the mountain, as if we're on the bottom, and all the good things we do, our church attendance, our giving, our not doing certain things, we're slowly working our way up to God. But listen to me this morning. That's not Christianity, that is religion. No, the story of the gospel is that God is on top of the mountain, and there is nothing, not yours and not my best five minutes that we can do to get to God. But in his kindness, he comes down from the mountain. He enters into our wilderness and into our brokenness, and he picks us up, and he carries us to be with him. Right? We see God's commitment his concern with his people. And then God turns and God makes a promise, or a biblical word here is covenant. God makes a promise or a covenant with David. And the first half of this covenant is to David and it's for David. But we'll see that the second half of this covenant goes far beyond David. Look at the text, verse 8. God says, this is what you're to say to my servant David. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be the prince over my people Israel. God says, David, here's my covenant with you. But first, I want you to look at what I've done. You were a shepherd in a pasture. 
When I came out to find a king, your father brought all your other brothers out, but he didn't even bring you because he didn't even think you would be a possibility. But what have I done for you, David? I want you to see it. I took you from the pasture to the palace. I have been with you. You see, David is where he is as king of Israel, not because he was so strong, but because he is so faithful. You see, one of the most common themes of the Old Testament is this, remember lest you forget. Remember lest you forget. God says, David, look at what I've done. Look at what I've done, and now look at what I will do. And I want us to see it in the text. Verse 9, what does he say? He says, I will make for you a, a name a great name, like the name of the great ones from the earth. Verse 10, I will plant my people so they will not be disturbed. Verse 11, I will give you what? Rest. Rest from all your enemies. God says, look at what I have done for you. Look at what I will do for you, but look at what I will do even beyond you. And in verse 11, God now shifts. Do you remember how the chapter started? David, God, I want to build a house for you. Now, God, no, David, I'm actually going to make a house for you. Not a physical house where the property brothers from HGTV, or this guy still on TV anymore? Yes, no? Chip and Joanna Gaines, does that resonate a little better? Where they come out and, and build it, not that, but a dynasty. He says, I'm talking about a descendant who will one day come to bring in my kingdom. And look, verse 12, look at how God describes this house, this dynasty. Verse 12, this kingdom will come long after you're dead. Death cannot stop it. Verse 13, Solomon, your son, he will build a temple, but long after him, this kingdom will stand. Verse 14, I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him. But verse 15, but I will never leave them. Here's what we need to understand this morning. When God is talking to his people, he says, you're going to mess up. But listen, the assurance you have is that I will be your father and you will be my people. And my faithful love will never leave you. This covenant, this promise that God makes cannot be ruined by sin. It cannot be stopped by death, and it cannot be erased by time. Verse 16, how long will this kingdom last? Come on, forever. That's exactly right, forever. And so now we get to the point in the text where we ask, is he talking about Solomon, David's son here? Listen, Solomon would build a temple at some point between 966 and 959 BC. But an eternal kingdom? That can't be Solomon. You see, this is a kingdom that can't be stopped by sin, right? It can't be stopped by death. It can't be erased by time. So what kind of kingdom is God talking about? Well, my friends, this is what we see in Christ. This text is a finger pointing to the Messiah. It's a finger pointing toward Christ, Jesus, who said, my kingdom is not of this world. 
Jesus, who said, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. Jesus, who said, I have come to dwell with my people and save them, and one day I will fully bring them into this kingdom. And we see here God so committed to dwelling among his people. This is what Jesus does when John 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelled there, it literally means tabernacled. He dwelt among us. You get to the very end of the Bible in Revelation 21, and we get a picture of just what this kingdom was like. Listen to this, Revelation 21. Look, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. It's all pointing toward that. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. Jesus shows John in Revelation 21 what that kingdom will look like, a kingdom of perfection. A kingdom where sin is removed and where peace is ushered in. And Jesus says, I'm not bringing a kingdom that will make Israel great again. It's to make the world perfect. I'm bringing a kingdom where health care won't even be needed. I'm bringing a kingdom where cancer is a memory. I'm bringing a kingdom that will be made of every tribe, of every language, of every people, of every nation. That is the kingdom that's promised here in 2 Samuel 7. And on the cross, Jesus wrote a check to purchase that kingdom. And three days later, he walked out of the tomb showing that that check cleared and the kingdom of God was inaugurated here on earth. See, David desires to build the Lord a house. God responds to that desire with with a promise. And then we see in the the last movement in our text, verse 18 to 29, that now David responds. And we're going to see here that David responds appropriately. David responds appropriately. How does David respond to this promise? What does he do? He prays. He prays. Look at what David focuses in on in this prayer. Because what I want us to see, what the text is is showing us here, is that there is real relationship with God. Look at verse 18. It says, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. He sat before the Lord. I'll just ask you the same question that came out of my study preparation this week. When was the last time you just sat before the Lord in prayer? Like, is this a regular rhythm for you? Listen to me, church. We're five months into this year, and we have said since January 8th, the beginning of this year, that this will be a year that we go all in with Jesus, where we desire as a church, as a community, to be utterly dependent on the Lord in prayer. So maybe we follow him. See, God called David a man after his own heart. And again, next week, we're going to see David messed up in some pretty massive ways. 
But there was a real relationship that David shared with his Lord. Right? I, I wonder if we were to be honest in here this morning, like how often does, does God just seem like just an idea, right? Like, like I'll just go to church, I'll not do bad things, but a relationship, enjoyment of God, I mean, how many of you this morning would just say, like, that, that doesn't describe the way I feel about God? Right? Maybe you see people around you and you go, man, they've got love for the Lord. They've got passion. They've got joy for the Lord. I really wish I had that. But if I'm honest, I couldn't be further away from that in my own life. And I think often our view of who God is is shaped by things apart from who God has revealed himself to be. Right? Where do we get our idea of who God is? Yes, we get it from the scriptures, but if we were to be honest this morning and, and, and answer the questions with some, some self-reflection, where would we say we get our idea of who God is? Is it social media? Is it TV? Is it experience? Circumstances? Right? As we zoom out and take inventory on life, maybe if we're honest, it just feels like God is distant. Like at best, God made things and then just sort of stepped back. And at worst, he's just up in heaven, just kind of laughing at us as, as we're just stumbling around on our own. But when we look at David and we look at his relationship with the Lord, we get a glimpse into his heart. And we have to see in this text that David's response isn't based on what is seen or what is experienced. David's response is based on what he heard. It's based on what God said. And this is true throughout the entire Bible. God speaks, we hear, right? That's why we have his word. And David responds in prayer. And we'll see in this prayer, really, there are kind of two themes or two pillars. There's this idea of grace and this idea of promise, of grace and of promise, See, David looks at what God has done for him, and he, what does he say? Who am I? The king of Israel going, who am I? Who am I, Lord? What is my house that you have brought me thus far? Right? His prayer just starts off with, with amazement, with wonder. Who am I? He responds humbly to the Lord. See, David doesn't expect God's grace. David is surprised by God's grace. David has lived faithfully for God, and yet when God extends grace to him, he's like, who am I? Who am I? Friends, this is at the very heart of grace. This is at the very heart of grace and our response to God. We have to make sure we don't expect God's grace. Like, look at me. And I think there's two ways that this begins to happen. I think one is often we begin to think more of ourselves than we should. And I think two, we lessen God's holiness. We, we sort of bring God down to to our level. But David begins with his recognition and that he doesn't even deserve God's grace. He hasn't earned it, right? That's the definition of grace, God's unmerited kindness, separated from earning, right? Grace is allergic to earning. 
And in verse 19, he says, Lord, what, what you've done to me, it was a little thing for you. See, David understood how big a thing God was talking about, that it wasn't just for David, it wasn't just for his family, but it was for all the families of the earth. And in verse 20 and 21, David is, again, just in awe of who God is. He's just amazed at God. He says, what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness. And then there's a shift in David's prayer, and it's in verse 22, and David focuses on God's character. And we see here that David starts with God's grace that has been extended to him, and then he looks at how God's grace has been extended to Israel, to God's people. Verse 23, and who is like your people, Israel? David notes Israel's uniqueness. And what makes them unique? Is it their military? Is it their arts? Is it their hipster restaurants? No, what makes them unique is the uniqueness of their God. David is saying what makes Israel so unique is that God came to them and delivered them and redeemed them. Look at what it says God did to Israel in verse 23. God went to them. God initiated Right When we were trapped in our sin, God came to us. Why? Because he loved them. Because he loved his people. Deuteronomy 7 tells us that it was not because Israel was so impressive. It was not because they were so great in number that he came to them. No, he came to them because he loved them. That is God's love. He loves them because he loves them. He loves you because he loves you not based on anything that you have done. I mean, imagine how hard it would be if God only loved us based on our status, right? If he only loved us based on what we could bring to him, right? That would mean that the moment that we failed, think about the uncertainty, think about the fear that would, that would bring. But when we see that God's love is rooted in his character, he loves because he loves, then we see the freedom to walk forward in knowing that when we fail, the moment we turn our back, he will be standing there because he loves you not based on your performance, but based on his love based on his grace. Listen, you cannot get to the bottom of why God loves you. Like, you can't do it. The Bible calls it a mystery. For all of eternity, we'll be peering into that question and we'll never fully grasp it. God freed his people from slavery and then he saved them to himself. This is how redemption works. God saves us from something and God saves us to something. He says this, in me you will find all the joy and all the satisfaction that your heart is longing for. What is David doing? David is rehearsing the gospel. He's rehearsing, he's remembering, he's preaching the gospel to himself in his prayer. And we must make sure in our lives that we know God's grace and that we are preaching God's grace moment by moment by moment to ourselves. 
David praises God for his grace. But then what does he do? He, he turns and he praises God for his, for his promise, for his covenant, for what God has said he will do. Verse 25, and now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house and do as you have spoken. Do as you have spoken. David makes this request to God. God, do as you have spoken. And I don't know if this happens for you, but maybe at first for you, this sort of comes off as maybe a little bit rude. Maybe you're like, I don't really know about that. David's not asking a question here, right? This is an imperative. This is a, a command. David is sitting before this same holy God who he has said, Lord, there's no one like you. And now he shifts and he says, God, this is what I'm telling you. You're like, hold up, pump the brakes, David. Slow your roll a little bit. Yet this is exactly what David and the rest of the scriptures have come to show us how we are to interact with God, how we are to pray to God. Lord, do as you have spoken. Give us this daily bread. Your kingdom come, your will be done. But one of the questions we have to ask is, okay, so what happens whenever we hear God's promises, yet the circumstances in our life seem different than that promise? One of my favorite Old Testament uh, scholars with the Lord now, J. Alec Mortier, said this, what's to be done when the promises of God are denied by the facts of experience? Answer, turn the promises into prayers and plead them before God. Turn the promises into prayers and plead them before God. Prayer pleads promises. Prayer pleads promises. Listen, as the experiences of life don't match up to what we see God has promised, what do we do? We plead God's promises. Right? My kids love to play Mario Kart on the Switch. I know Pastor Ryan's talked about his kids like to do it. It's just a, yeah, kids, that's, that's what the cool kids are doing these days. So my kids love to do that. And my kids often on the weekends will say, hey dad, can we play the Switch today? And usually it's a not right now, but at some point before the day, you can play the Switch. And so Saturdays will be packed out. We'll be doing baseball or basketball or hanging with friends or doing this, that, the other. But the moment we come back in the door, what's one of the first things my kid asked me? Can we play the Switch? Right? Can we play? And listen, what I've learned is the most persuasive thing they can do is to come to me and to remind me of something I've promised them. And it's no different with our relationship with God. God has not forgotten his promises. He is not too busy. No, he's saying, come to me. I want you to remind me of my promises because it is going to happen. It may happen a little more different than you, what you had in your mind, but what I said will come to pass will come to pass. 
what God has done and what God will do. We must keep that at the forefront of our memories. Church, listen to me. I am convinced, I'm convinced for us that the problem for so many of us is not that we don't know what to pray, but it is that we don't know what God has promised. It's not that we don't know what to pray. We don't know what God has promised. Right? If God raised Jesus from the dead, we can trust his promises. Listen to me. Follow me real quick. If you fast forward through the Old Testament, the kingdom that is now unified, as I said, is going to divide again. Exile will come. Another government will come and rule Israel. And the question the last half of the Old Testament is begging is, what's going on? Has the Lord forgotten his promises? Have his promises failed? We see that in the, Old, in the New Testament, the answer is no. We can trust his promises. You see, this Jesus who fulfilled 2 Samuel 7, I want you to hear. Here are just a few of his promises. Matthew 28, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. How about John 14, 18? I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Or John 16, In this world you will experience tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I am peace. Matthew 10, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. John 14, 3, I go and prepare a place for you that where I am you may be also. Open the Bible. Open the Bible to Romans chapter 8. Great place to hang your hat on the promises of God. Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You see, the suffering that you're going through right now pales in comparison with the glory that is to be revealed to us if you are in Christ. Yes, the pain, yes, the suffering may be great now, but those who walk through the greatest pain in life and in this world might just have the best idea of just how incredible heaven will be. Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How do we see these promises? We must open his word. Remember, David is responding to what God has said. And if we don't hear from God, if we don't open up this book, not as a checklist, but if we don't open this book and say, God, I'm ready to see who you are, what you've done, what you've promised, then things all, then all of a sudden this, this Christian life that seems so dry and so distant becomes, begins to come to life over time as we hold on to the promises of God. As we prepare to take the Lord's Supper this morning,